Hello, everybody. Welcome back as we continue our studies in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Today we will complete chapter 10, and we will go through chapter 11, if all goes according to plan. And I apologize that last week I went over so long, and that is why they bought me a timer, which is right there, so I know how much time I'm using up. And uh, so I'll try to be very faithful to the clock and not go over my allotted amount. Uh, Last week, we spent almost an hour and a half on just a handful of verses, but they're probably the most dire passage of Scripture that I know of, especially in Paul's writings, and they deserved time. Uh, So last week, we read about how Paul was taking the examples of the faithlessness, the cowardice, and... um, and the weakness, the immaturity of the Israelites in the wilderness, and says these are things are for our examples, so we don't commit the same errors. And uh, he talks about how dire these, these, these things were and the consequences were so serious. And one last thing before we get going, if you see me doing some squinting, I arrived this morning, sat down to teach, and realized I do not have my glasses. So if I do a little squinting, you'll understand why. So we're just going to pick it up right where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's okay to stand and know you're standing, and I think most believers do think they're standing, but that does not excuse us from exercising caution because we are still in a position to fall. And I'm sure that the Israelites who really failed the test so disastrously in the wilderness all thought they were standing at the time, but they weren't. And it says, and this is how our Bibles normally read in verse uh, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted above your ability, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My suggest that's really a horrible translation of that verse, yet it's the one that most of us grew up with and memorized. But let me word it as it should be, in my opinion, how it should be translated. First of all, we have to realize that in Greek, there are not separate words for test and temptation. It's the same word in Greek. We know that in English, a temptation and a test are two different things. Um, You test someone to prove their, their worth so that they can succeed, but you tempt someone so that they will fail. It's the... Um, it's the goal of this exercise that is at heart and is the difference between a test and temptation. So let's put the word test in here instead. No test has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your ability. But with the test, he will provide an outcome or a sequel that you may be able to endure it. That word escape is a horrible word, and it's only used twice in that form in the New Testament scriptures that it's found here, and it's found in Hebrews 13, 7, where it says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the escape of their conduct? No. Instead, consider the result, the outcome of their conduct. 
and imitate their faith. This is a much better translation. But for whatever reason, here in 1 Corinthians 10, it's translated escape, which it should not be. And over in Hebrews 13, 7, it is translated correctly as result or outcome. Imagine how frustrating it is when you're tempted and you look for a, an exit door. And God says, no, 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 no. When you're going through a test, you go through the test. and You come out the other side. There will be a sequel. There will be an outcome. There will be a way through it. So go through, endure the test, and come out the other end. But if we think God is promising a way of escape, we're going to be very frustrated when we don't find it. Tests are meant to be endured and not to be sidestepped. And this next section I call the power of attitude. Throughout the scriptures, we are instructed how to think, how to consider things, what attitude to have. Uh, Paul writes, uh, let this thinking, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Um, In Romans, Paul tells us to reckon ourselves, have the attitude, make yourself realize that you are dead to sin. And throughout the scriptures, we're told how to think, what attitude to have. Attitudes are extremely powerful things. So here's what it says, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Messiah? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Messiah? Now, why has he jumped to this? He's referred to spiritual food and drink earlier in chapter 10. He's going to continue this theme here. And then he'll pick it up and go into great detail in the next chapter. And what he's saying is, is when you drink that cup of wine, when you eat that piece of bread, have the attitude that it's something much, much more. Because we're commanded to do these things, Yeshua says, in remembrance of me. These things are extremely powerful things. Don't treat them as merely a physical exercise, as merely a ritual but have a certain attitude towards them because it will have a, a, a powerful impact on your own life. You'll see what I'm talking about, hopefully, as we get through. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One of the things that's so amazing about fellowship around a, a meal is that you're taking a life source, that meal, that that bread or that casserole or whatever it is, and you're all sharing the same life force. So the the life that is in that food, that energy, is now going into all the members of the people around that table. Yeshua has given himself to us. And in John, I believe, chapter 6, he talks about how his flesh is meat indeed, it's food indeed, and his blood is drink indeed. And he wasn't talking about this literally being so, But he's saying we need to feed upon the actions, the things that he did. Let them instruct us. Let them become the way we live our lives as we see what he did in his body. Let that be what our body does. We need to feed upon his word and let that energize us to live a life like his. And drinking his blood. Blood equals life. The life is in the blood. And blood always represents the very essence of life. And he says, I want my life to be in you. And so you will live with the energy that I have, and you'll live it out in your body the way I did. So 
when we partake of the Passover meal or the bread and the wine on Erev Shabbat, we need to look at it in a more serious way, more profound way, and realize this is a picture of me actually participating in the death and in the life of my Savior. And then in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do I, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Food and idols are two physical things. They're physical things. An idol is made out of stone or wood. Food is made out of grain and meat. So he says, these are not what really matter here. But the next verse, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Idols and food are physical things, but God is spirit, and demons are spiritual entities. He says, this is the reality that lies behind the physical symbol. And these are the things to avoid. His entire argument about not worrying of a piece of meat is, is sacrifice to an idol. A piece of meat is a piece of meat. But if you participate that with an awareness, this is something given to an idol, and therefore I am supporting idolatry. Now that attitude changes everything. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is a reference to the things that the Israelites did in the wilderness and how they fell. They provoked God to jealousy because they did involve themselves in idolatry, and we are told to flee from idolatry. So we need to have discernment to recognize what's physical and what's spiritual. And he's going to give another example of this as we go, but again, the power of attitudes is everything. I have some examples here. Let's take, um, let's, let's take an example of something that's very simple to do physically, but the spiritual attitude behind it is profound. Because after all, the attitude of the heart is the spirit of a deed. So let's take an example, something simple, just something like tithing. Easiest thing in the world to do. You take money, you drop it in the box. You write the check, you drop it in the box. The physical act is a simple one. But let's take some examples of people who are all performing the exact same physical act, but the spiritual attitudes are different. For example, some people may give because they're treating God as a vending machine. I gave money to God, now I expect a blessing. I put a dollar in the machine, I expect a candy bar to come out. I put a tithe in the box, now God owes me a blessing. It's a transaction. If you have that attitude about giving, it's not really giving. Or how about this one? God is ego builder. I gave a lot of money to God. I expect his gratitude. In other words, I expect God to lift me up because I have paid him a a good deal of money. I've given a lot to him. I expect him to give a lot to me. How about protection money? I know God has called me to serve him, but maybe he won't be angry if I just give him this money instead. In other words, we're tithing as a substitute for obedience. If you have that attitude, your tithe really doesn't mean much to him. Or how about this? You can actually tithe out of spite. 
I know my wife wants a new couch, but she needs to learn that our money belongs to God. I'm going to teach my wife a lesson. And you're actually giving out of a sense of anger. Or we can give in gratitude. With the attitude, thank you, Father, for your generous provision. Please accept this gift as a small token of my love and gratitude. Now remember, all five of these people have performed the exact same identical physical act. They took money, they put it in the box. And yet, in the spiritual realm, their acts could not be more different. And of course, what stories does this remind you of? Of course, it's the story told in Mark about the, uh, uh, Yeshua and his disciples being in the temple and watching all the, the wealthy people drop in gold into the, the offering. And then came along a, med, a, a widow that had two little mites, two little copper coins, the smallest coin that they made. She had two of them. Is all she had, and she dropped those two mites in the box. And Yeshua said she gave more than all of them. Her physical act may have been less, but in the spiritual realm, her act was magnificent. And we still talk about it today. So attitude is everything. Because after all, the attitude of the heart is the spirit of a deed. I know some people who serve God, or at least think they do, and they do it out of anger. They do it out of hatred. And um, they do it because they want to prove other people wrong. This is the wrong attitude. If it's not done in love, if it's not done in devotion and humility, then what does it matter what you're doing? And then as we continue on, in verse 23, we come to the next section which is imitating Messiah. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but, but not all things build up. Now that sounds familiar. He said pretty much exactly the same thing back in chapter 6 and verse 12. So instead of rehashing this and going through all of it again, you can go back to chapter 6 and 12 and listen to the comments I made at that time. But verse 24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now there are words to live by, because that is how Messiah lived. He didn't live for his own sake. He lived for the sake of others, for you, for me. And he is teaching us this, what I call the bottom line. You are not here for your own sake. Your life will have meaning and purpose only to the degree you lay it down for others. Others meaning God and, and others. In fact, the only way you can really serve God in this world is by serving others. And if you're not serving others with the right attitude then your life's not going to have the purpose and the meaning that you want it to have. You're not here for yourself. Yeshua did not come to seek his own will and his own ways. He came to do everything exactly as the Father showed him and told him. If we're disciples of Yeshua, that is how we are called to live our lives as well. Paul goes on. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So if you see a piece of meat in the meat market, it's a piece of meat. 
Who made it? God did. So don't ask, was this sacrifice to an idol or not? Because your attitude is, I'm a human being. I require food. There's food. And it's a piece of food that is biblically kosher. It's not a piece of pork or shrimp. Therefore, it can give nourishment to my body, and I can use it to God's glory. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers, an unbeliever now, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, and you don't always have to be disposed to go to eat with someone who's not a believer. You need to take it case by case. Eat whatever is set before you without asking or raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now, of course, if they set something before you that is forbidden by the Torah, you don't eat it. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about whether a piece of meat has been offered to an idol or not. And he says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So put yourself in the place of this this, uh, believer. He's been invited to dinner by an unbeliever. Some a piece of beef, piece of lamb has been put on the table. And as you're preparing to eat or after you've started, your, your, your host tells you, by the way, this was sacrificed to the goddess Diana. Why is he telling you that? He's telling you that because he wants you to know who his God is and how observant he is in bringing sacrifice to his God. And the moment they tell you that, the entire dynamic of the meal has changed. At that point, you become a vegetarian. At that point, you don't eat the meat. Because at that point, if he sees you continuing to eat the meat, then he takes that as an endorsement of his idol worship. But when you refuse to eat the meat, and you can still do it graciously and and refuse it graciously, you're letting him know, I don't worship idols. I worship the one true God, the one that you can't make an image of. And then you see where the conversation takes you from there. But you, by all means, you you do not want to give the impression that you are endorsing idolatry. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And then Paul asks a couple questions. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? It's a great question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I uh, denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So he's asking the question. So this is not an argument. He's simply asking the question. Why should I change my behavior for the sake of someone else's conscience? And then he gives the answer. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's why we limit our behavior based on the conscience of another. If the other sees me partake, partaking of meat that was sacrificed to an, uh, uh, to an idol with knowing I'm aware of that, I'm not giving God glory. But by refusing that meat, I give glory to God. And everything I, should, I do should be done for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the assembly of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved.
This was Messiah's attitude. And the next verse says, be imitators of me as I am of Messiah. That verse, which is the first verse of chapter 11, should actually be the last verse of chapter 10. I don't know why they made this part of the next chapter. It should be part of the previous chapter, chapter 10. So we should be imitators of Messiah in everything we do. And what did Yeshua do? Everything he did was to bring glory to his Father. He didn't do anything to bring glory to himself, but to bring glory to the Father. And that should be our goal. There's something that turns my stomach when I see people claiming to serve God, but they're lapping up the glory for themselves. That is so inappropriate, and that's so confusing, and it's so damaging to the body of Messiah. When a person is truly serving God, they should become as invisible as possible. To where people don't see them, don't notice them, but they see the light coming out of them. They see the spirit of Messiah coming through them, and they hear God's voice speaking through them. That should always be our goal, that we should decrease, but Messiah should increase in us. And that's a, 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 tough, uh, that's a tough juggling act, uh, but that is what we should always pursue. I wasn't going to talk about this, but it just came to mind. So I'm going to share it, and I have probably talked about this before, but I know in the modern-day church, there's hardly anything that's more divisive than music. Something that should be used to, to bring glory to God is something that's constantly dividing uh, congregations and communities. Why is this? Well, we live in a time when, and it's probably always been this way, but when someone's a, a really skillful musician, and they're up on stage, it's very tempting to become very showy. And uh, especially with a lot of modern music, it's not even the music people like. It's the, it's the, the act that goes along with it. It's all the, the bells and whistles and the gimmickry that goes along with it. The outfits, the antics, and the, the, all the silliness. And it's almost like the music is just an accompaniment for me acting like a, a, a total idiot on stage. But a true musician who truly gives glory to God, when they begin to produce music, whether it's playing an instrument or singing or both, if they're really channeling God's spirit and truly doing it for God's glory, that musician kind of disappears. You'll find yourself closing your eyes And all of a sudden, it's just God who shows up. It's God you become aware of. And if a person can do music in that way, then that is one who can use his gift to really bless people by removing himself almost entirely and letting the music just be a a channel, a, um, a, a vessel by which we bring God's presence into a group of people. That's the kind of musician, the kind of music we should pursue. Music's fun, and music's fun to listen to and pass the time and and to be entertaining. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm talking about when we are doing it in service of God. It should be a little bit different. Anyways, we'll get back on track. Now, chapter 11, verse 2, which should be the beginning of the chapter, starts this way. Now I commend you because... But now flip over to verse 17. 
where Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I always kind of wondered why Paul dropped this first half of chapter 11 in here because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. Because he's talking about meat. He's talking about God versus demons. Meat sacrificed to idols instead of meat that is uh, eaten with gratitude because God gave it. He's been talking about the cup of the Lord. He's been talking about the bread, the body of Messiah. And in in verse 17, he picks up that theme again. So it's like, Paul, why are you dropping this whole thing in here about tradition, about head coverings? You notice I put this in parentheses because it doesn't really belong. So you might ask the question, well, why did Paul put it there? The only reason I can think of is that he, he wants to commend them about something before he really lowers the boom in verse 17. He's a nice guy, right? It's, it's like, uh, it's like uh, a, a mother, you know, who comes into her child's room and, and she'll say something like, Honey, I, I really appreciate your enthusiasm and your dedication in practicing the drums that Grandma gave you for your birthday. But then she wants to say, but you're driving me insane, is what she wants to say. Uh, a wise woman will say, and, and because you're so good, enthusiastic, how about if you and I get in the car, we'll pack up your drums, we'll take you to Grandma's house, and you can play for her the rest of the day. But he's, you know a mom is. Honey, I appreciate what you're doing, but, and then they have to bring correction. I think that's what Paul's doing here. I commend you about this, but in verse 17, but here's something. You've got to fix this. So what I'm going to do, I'm completely skip those uh, 15 verses from 2 to 16. And if we have time, we'll come back to those at the end. And I know you're all probably anxious to, to get into what's all this about, about head coverings and men not having their heads covered. And should men wear kippahs? Should women start wearing doilies on their head? And we'll, we'll get to that if we have to. It's really quite simple. But I don't want to, to break the flow of what Paul is talking about here, about being imitators of him as he is of Messiah. So we're going to skip section D and go on to E. So we'll pick it up in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. One of the discussion questions at the end of the teaching that you'll see on the screen is um, are gatherings, are large gatherings good or are they bad? How can gatherings with other believers be good and healthy? But then how can gatherings with other believers also be something detrimental? And what is God's norm? And I think we all have had experiences, and you, you should discuss this later, where you've been with another group of believers and it just wasn't appropriate. It actually diminished your, your sense of fellowship with God. But then you can be with another group of believers and your, your fellowship with God, your sense of, of his presence is, is elevated. What makes the difference there? It says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And then he gives a couple particulars. First, For in the first place, when you come together as an assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. A couple interesting things here. First of all, he's not talking about cliques. Sometimes people say in a congregation, well, there are just too many cliques, too many little groups. Um, well, let's just think about that for a second. That is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be. But we just can't say, well, that's a clique, and then therefore condemn it. Because, as I've said many times before, Yeshua had many, many, many disciples. But out of his many disciples, he picked 12 to be his apostles. I guess they became a clique, didn't they? But then out of those 12, there were three, Peter, James, and John, which he would he would take into special kinds of encounters uh, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He left the other nine at the bottom of the mountain, took Peter, James, and John up with him. Um, there are other occasions where he took these three. So the other nine might say, well, they've become a clique. Then out of those three, there was one particular disciple, the one who's called the disciple whom Yeshua loved. He loved them all, but there was a special connection with this one, the youngest of the disciples, that would be John. And his love for John was so great that when Yeshua was on the cross, he entrusted the care of his mother Mary into the hands of John. And John was the only one of the disciples who was there at the crucifixion. He didn't run away. So even in Yeshua's life, there were levels of intimacy with groups of people. The same thing's going to happen with you. If you're part of a large community, you can't be an equal friend to everybody. There's not going to be the same level of intimacy with every single person in that group. Even if your, your fellowship, your congregation is 50 people, there are certain ones you're going to have a more kindred spirit with. And this is natural. In the, in the next few chapters, Paul's going to be talking about how we are a body. We're all different parts of a body. And my fingers have particular uses and purposes, and my toes have different ones. But, this may be too, informa- too much information, but my fingers and my toes don't have a lot of fellowship together during the week, if ever. But if the body of Messiah, as some people are the fingers and some are the toes, you know, the fingers might start boasting, oh, those toes are always down in the dirt, getting dirty, and they're just such lowly creatures. And then um, the toes might say, oh, those fingers, they, they're so uppity. But they wouldn't get anywhere without us. You understand? We should be functioning as one in the gifts that God's given us. And if you are a finger on a hand with other fingers, you're going to have a lot of tight fellowship with those other fingers. And if your fingers on another click, on the other hand, you're going to have close fellowship with this other clique. But you may not have so much close fellowship with your toes. But you all need each other. So don't allow the enemies to suggest that natural natural kinds of, of uh, categorizing and natural kinds of separation, gentle separation between parts. Don't let him suggest to you that that's somehow sinful and wrong and you've got to just be one big blob. No. We all have parts. We all depend on each other. And be humble. Whatever part of the body of Messiah you are, be humble and be gracious and grateful and appreciative of the other parts of the body. 
There's none of them that are unimportant and unnecessary. Does that make sense? So I'm going to imagine I hear all of you saying, yes, that makes sense. All right. But here he's talking about factions that are not healthy, not natural, not wholesome. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. If there's a division in a congregation, then there are two possibilities. One possibility is one side is right and the other side is wrong. The other possibility is that both sides are wrong. But the possibility that both sides are right is not a possibility, if it's a real faction, if they're actually against one another. They're either both wrong or one of them's wrong, but somebody's wrong. And he says these factions do serve one purpose, and that is to, to reveal the ones who are right. Very interesting. It's a, something I, I want to give more thought to, but you can, I, I want you to join me in that. But now he brings up the second point in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the meal of the master. You know, we call it the Lord's Supper. I like calling it the meal of the master, which is much more of an accurate translation. It is not the meal of the master that you eat. You think you're eating the meal of the master, but it's not. In other words, if you're not doing the right attitude and the right spirit, then you can call it what you want, but that doesn't make it so. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk, and that getting drunk, he may be using hyperbole there. I hope people didn't actually get physically drunk, but he might be using it as hyperbole, saying some of you are just enjoying yourselves so much, you don't even notice the rest of the people around you. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the assembly of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now let's understand what's going on here. This would have made perfect sense in the first century. But here in the 21st century, uh, without that same culture and the practices of the, the first century assembly of Messiah, Uh, it may not make as much sense. So let's start at the beginning. If you look at the screen, most everyone who sees this recognizes that this is the order of the Passover Seder. Um, The Passover celebrates Israel's redemption from Egypt. And uh, they would take a lamb, they killed the lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb on the outside doorpost and the lintel of the door. They took the body of the lamb inside, they roasted over fire, they ate it, they had their bags packed, they had their shoes on, their belts tightened, and their staffs in their hands, and they were ready to march out the next day. The blood on the outside of the door was for God to see. God says, when I see you, I will pass over you, and the angel of death, the destroyer, will not come in and kill your firstborn. So the blood of the lamb represents that we've been passed from death to life. The body of the lamb, though, they were to eat it, eat all of it, and not break any bones of it, because it would give them strength to walk out of Egypt the next morning. Because Egypt was a place of slavery, and after eating the body of that lamb, they could walk from slavery into freedom. This is what the the blood and the body of Messiah represent. The blood represents that he has passed us from death to life through his death, And when God sees the blood of Messiah in our lives, we're passed from death to life. 
But the body of the lamb is to give us strength. The body of the lamb is a picture of the word of God and the word made flesh, Yeshua. And the blood was for outside for God to see, but the body was to put, put in their bodies to give them strength because to walk out of slavery requires strength and dedication. Only one time in Israel's history did they ever apply blood to their doorposts and lentils. One time. Likewise, Yeshua only had to die once for the remission of sins for the whole world. But every Passover, the Jews would eat another lamb of a, a body of a lamb. They would eat the lamb's body year after year after year after year. Because we need to continue feeding on the word of God over and over and over and over again so we can maintain our freedom. By living on the word of God, we take it in and we live it out in our own bodies. It's like food bringing energy to us, giving us strength to do. And if we're not living in freedom, it's because we either just like Egypt better or we're too weak to walk in freedom. Freedom takes strength. And um, we need to continue feeding up on the body of the lamb. So they celebrate the Passover Seder as they celebrate their redemption from Egypt. Yeshua was crucified on Passover thousands of years later. And the night before Passover, he said, I long to eat this Passover with you. And um, they had a Seder. And we're not going to get into the complications of why Yeshua had a Seder a day early, but that's another story. But at the Seder, there would be four cups of wine. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. Everybody would drink from that cup. There would be some prayers and blessings. There would be a second cup, the cup of deliverance. Then you have the meal. And this is where they would eat the lamb with matzah and bitter herbs. Then immediately after the meal, there would be a third cup. This is called the cup of redemption. And then after that would be the fourth cup, the cup of praise. These four cups are probably one of the most ancient, at least the most ancient parts recorded for us about the order of the Seder. There's a tractate uh, in the Talmud called Pesachim, which means Pesach, uh, uh, Passover. And the last chapter of that tractate goes into tremendous detail about these four cups, how they were established, what they represent, and so on. But two before the meal, two after the meal. So let's make sure we, have under, we understand the Passover Seder. Now, as John describes what took place in that upper room at what we call the Last Supper, it says this. Um, we'll pick it up in verse, whatever that is. <laughs> For I received from God what I also delivered to you, that the Master, Yeshua, on the night when he was betrayed, why didn't he just say at the Passover Seder or the night before Passover? Why did he identify the day as the day he was betrayed? This is important. He took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it. So this is the meal. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after the meal, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what we find is this. Messiah took the bread and he took the cup after the meal and gave special significance to them. 
And what is the cup after the meal called? The cup of redemption. It was that cup. He says, this is the covenant in my blood. He took those two items out of the Seder and he gave special significance to them. And in the first century, the, um, the Gentile believers, they could not eat the Passover lamb. First of all, you'd have to go to Jerusalem to eat it because you could only eat the Passover lamb if you were in Jerusalem where that lamb could be slaughtered by the priest at the temple and his blood thrown on the altar. And only Jews, those who were circumcised, could partake of that meat. Now, everyone was welcome to have a Seder. You just couldn't have lamb there. But Yeshua is taking something, the bread and the third cup, and giving it special significance, saying everybody can eat this. Jew, Gentile, it makes no difference. So he's homing in on this. Now, what was the, the business where Paul's talking about how these people are coming together and some are eating a lot, others are getting drunk, and they're just uh, not treating this meal of the master uh, in the appropriate way? Well, there's a, a, a massive commentary Zondervan publishes on 1 Corinthians. And uh, in fact, I'm going to quote a little bit from page 502 where it comments on this. Because you realize there were no church buildings and so believers assembled in homes. It says, since all celebrations of the Lord's Supper would have been in the larger homes of wealthy Christians, the point Paul establishes is that when the church gathers together, the space is no longer someone's home. It is a special space of worship. When a home is opened up for worship, then the rules of the gathered community apply as they eat and drink the Lord's Supper, not the social rules of Roman society. Furthermore, in light of this, it is easier to understand why Paul said in verse 17 that you gather together not for the better, but for the worse. Why is that? Because given that even the servants serving at the table, if they're believers, would have been entitled to eat the Lord's Supper in the same manner as those they normally waited on. Now think about that. All the other days of the week, the servants are serving their masters. But when it comes to the meal of the master, and Paul talks about this extensively in his writings, that slaves and masters are on an equal basis when, it's, when they stand before God. In the Lord, they're the same. So even though the servants had a right to eat the Lord's Supper in the same manner as those they normally waited on, it is easy to imagine what a social upheaval the Christian faith was causing. Given that the poorer classes would have had less time at their disposal, it is likely that they would have arrived later at the host house for the Lord's Supper. Thus, the poorer people would not have been seated in the best room for eating, but also would have arrived to find the status-seeking elite already eating or having devoured their food. Paul uses hyperbole to make this point as he calls them drunk. So we see here that the dynamics were, were very unique. Now, the question might arise, well, did they only do this once a year at the Passover Seder? No. And I've commented on this before, back when we were doing questions and answers uh, 
uh, back in the fall. It was in the Q&A session, the second Q&A session. We went into this in detail. Every Friday night at the Erev Shabbat table, we don't do four cups of wine and, and matzah, but what we do practice is this. After the, the lady of the house lights the candles, welcomes in the Sabbath, there's some songs and blessings and all of that, we take a cup of wine and we do a blessing over that. We do the bracha. We do a blessing and then we do the bread. So in the Jewish home, the tradition is you do a cup of wine and then you do the bread and start the meal. But between the meal and the cup, there's a special blessing that is done in Jewish homes. And we do it in our home as well. Between the meal between the, the cup and the bread, the bread and the cup, whichever order you do it, this blessing is said, and this is an ancient blessing. Now listen to what it says. And with love and favor, you, Lord, gave us his holy Shabbat as a heritage, a memorial of the creation, a day which is the beginning of our sacred gatherings, a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. For us did you choose and us did you sanctify from every tribe and nation. You see what's being said here? It's being said that on Erev Shabbat, on Friday night, when we bless the cup and we bless the bread, this is a mini Passover Seder. It is a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. Well, if it's a memorial from the exodus, of the exodus from Egypt, it should also be a memorial of the body and blood of Messiah. And I have to confess, uh, for all the years that we've been doing Erev Shabbats and doing the blessings over the cup and the bread, too many times for me it's been, well, these are the things we do, and they're beautiful, and they're wonderful, we love them, but let's eat. And I just intend to be more intentional, to kind of pause over the blessing of the bread, over the blessing of the cup, and to be more intentional, to realize and have the attitude in my own heart and soul that this represents more than just the blood of the lamb that brought the Israelites out of Egypt. This represents the blood and the body of Messiah who gave me life and set me free from slavery. I want to be more intentional about that in the days ahead. And I invite you to do that as well. So let's make it meaningful. Let's make it meaningful. And I think what Paul says to the to these people in 1 Corinthians about how their behavior was so so poor when they were having the meal of the Messiah. I don't think it applies to us so much because at least all the Arab Shabbats I've been to, there's a great dignity and, and um, an intention and purpose and gratitude to God for what we're doing. So I haven't seen the things Paul describes in the homes I've been in at least. But this next part is something that this week, early in the week, as I began to read this, struck my heart with such power that I can't quite put it into words. Words that I've read and heard read hundreds of times, this week just somehow came alive for me. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am not, I'm not qualified to really teach this. 
And what I'm going to try to share is so utterly spiritual. And that's why it's so powerful. That uh, I don't know if I can get it across. So my prayer this week is that whatever words I speak from this point forward, that God's Spirit will come alongside and help open them up in your heart. And what I'm about to say is going to be difficult the younger you are. Because the younger you are, there's going to be more interference. Just the excitement of being young is, is going to get in the way. But you're not excused from trying to really make this reality a reality in your life. To adopt the attitude that Paul is about to proclaim here. Because here's what he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about that for a moment. It didn't say you proclaim the Lord's life. You proclaim the Lord's resurrection. You proclaim the Lord's power. You proclaim the Lord's salvation that he gives us. No. You proclaim his death. Period. You proclaim his death until he comes. Every time you do this, there's one thing you're proclaiming. Yeshua died. The Son of God came to the world and he died. The Messiah came as prophesied and he died. And the weight of this is that God requires you and me to die too. The reason this hit me with such power this week is because we all know what it's like when you go through stress or anxiety, you go through worry, you go through pain. And for some reason, when I read this verse, I started thinking about death. And if I'm a a disciple of Messiah, I need to die like he did. It's like George MacDonald said. He said, Christ did not come to die so that we would not have to die, but so that our deaths could be like his. Those words always rang as true, but I never could quite understand them until this week. And I started thinking about people commit suicide just a little over a week ago. A guy that I grew up with, we were only about four months apart in age. We went to Sunday school together. We grew up, our, our moms were, were good friends. And, um, and I just found out uh, a week ago that he had died. In fact, he had taken his own life. And I, f- I asked about it, and it turned out that he had been ill. He had several chronic things going on. He was in a lot of pain, and he finally just took his life. So I ask the question, why is it that people take their lives? Why do people commit suicide? And I've distilled it down to just one reason. I think it's the reason anybody who commits suicide does so. For one reason, freedom. They want to be free from pain. They want to be free from hopelessness. Free of the agony of a a broken relationship and of loss. 
free from a feeling of nothing matters. Just, they want to be free. And they realize that through death, all the things causing their suffering come to an end. You want your suffering to come to an end? Don't commit suicide. But we are to be living sacrifices. And as I was reading this and thinking about it, I started thinking, all right, Grant, if you were dead right now, would you be upset about the things going on? If you were dead right now, would you be worried about anything? If you were dead right now, would you be anxious for anything? Of course, I wouldn't. It's like a voice deep down in my heart said, then live as a dead man. And then passages of Scripture began to flood in that teach this very thing. It's like, why could I had never see it before? It's the key to, to true happiness, the, tree, the key to unburdening my soul of self is through dying. But being a living sacrifice. Now, the only way we can do that is by experiencing resurrection life here and now. But resurrection is only found on the other side of a death. Our problem is we want resurrection life without first walking through the door of death. Let me share some things with you. I just this past week <clears throat> finished a, a marvelous book by N.T. Wright called The Day the Revolution Began. It's a, a pretty long book. It's about 500 pages or so. It took me a while to get through it, but it really was uh, a, a very impactful book. And I think it might be the very last chapter. It's called The Passover People. And I want to read a short section for you. It says, I suspect that this passage about the necessity of suffering has not been fully understood in today's church, especially in the comfortable Western churches to which I and many of my readers belong. We know, all know in theory that the Christian life will involve suffering. Yet those who are eager for, quote, bringing the kingdom, unquote, for social and cultural renewal in our day, can easily forget that the revolution that began on the cross only works through the cross. I thought, yeah, there it is right there. The revolution that began on the cross only works through the cross. And those who are eager to save souls for heaven, unquote, are likely to regard suffering simply as something through which most of us, some of the time, and some of us, most of the time, will have to pass. He says that's wrong thinking. Rather than as something by means of which the rescuing love of God is poured out into the world. The latter is closer to the mark. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This well-known quotation from the African theologian Tertullian writing around A.D. 200, reflects the early Christian perception that suffering or dying for the faith is not simply a necessary evil. The inevitable and concomitant of following a way that the world sees as dangerously subversive. No. Suffering and dying is the way by which the world is changed. This is how the revolution continues. It's probably not what you want to hear. But when you're aware of this theme, 
then suddenly many passages of Scripture will come to mind. How about Matthew 16, 24? Yeshua told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, or as the complete Jewish Bible says, let him say no to himself. Take up his cross, which is what? It's an implement of death. Take up his cross and follow me. In other words, only dead people need apply to be a disciple of Yeshua. People who've died to self. People have said no to themselves. People who realize, I'm tired of all the pain life brings. I want to choose to live as a dead man. And all of a sudden, there's freedom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I remember when I first gave my life to the Lord when I was in my late teens. Early years of college, I came across Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book. Uh, I believe it was called The Call of Discipleship. I'm not sure if I have the title right. I began to read it, and I found it such difficult reading, not intellectually, but in my heart. I knew I just was not mature to embrace this. I just not ready to count the cost of being a discipleship, as Bonhoeffer described it. I think I might see it differently now, you know, (laughs) more than half a century later. But Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, Yeshua said this in Matthew, he says it in Mark, he says it in Luke. And how about Paul, Romans 12.1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifices. sacrifice. Holy, set apart, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. See, here's the problem. We all want the transformation, but we don't want the sacrifice part. We want the change and the resurrection, but we don't want the death. But the sacrifice always must precede the transformation. The death must precede the resurrection. Let me show you something. It's right in the very first chapter of Genesis. That's how important this concept is. God said, let us make man in our image. That word is the word zelem. And after our likeness, and the word for likeness is the word damut. And if you go on to the next verse, verse 27, so God created man in his own zelem, and the zelem of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Well, why didn't he say in his damut as well? Let us make man in our image, and in our damut. So God made uh, made man in his own image, in the image of God. He, where's Demut? Where did likeness go? What's the deal? Well, the, the answer to that question is in the word Demut itself. You see these last three letters? These last three letters spell the word Moot, which is the word death. When God warned Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, 
you will certainly die. He said, Yamot uh, Yamut, dying you shall die. Sometimes I wonder if the word moot is where we get our word mute because <laughs> dead people are mute, aren't they? So the last three letters spell the word death. Now this first letter, the name of that letter is Dalit. And you know what Dalit means? It means door. So if we separate this into two words, we have the word door of death. Dalit moot. And here, I believe with all my heart, God has given us an insight. He's saying, I want Adam, I want man, I want you to be in my image and after my likeness. Now, I can make you in my image. And he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, and Adam had a head and arms and torso and legs and feet. Not that God has these things, but this... The schematic is like a schematic that helps describe the invisible God who is utterly spirit. And by understanding the body, we can begin to comprehend a little bit how God operates. But the only way we could be made into his likeness is through death. Stepping through the door of death. Which is exactly what God did in the form of his son, Yeshua. And death is something we can do every moment of every day. And the way we do it is this. There are things in my soul that want this to happen, want that to happen, wants my way. And then we look at my way and say, no. Because a dead man has no desires for those things. And Father, here I am. I'm an empty vessel to be filled by you. When this reality hit me and it still continued to hit me, some very strange things began to happen. My blood pressure went back to normal. I sleep like a baby at night. When I pray, I feel like I feel like one selfless entity talking to another selfless entity. I feel like I've stepped into the formula that makes every perfect marriage a perfect marriage. You have one selfless person committed to another selfless person. A selfless man, a selfless woman. How could anything go wrong? You see, our problem is our souls are like, like a vessel, like a cup. You can picture the, uh, the Passover cup. We're like a cup. That's like the soul. What's in your cup? Well, what's in your cup is often selfishness, anger, unforgiveness, anxiety. And we all want to go to heaven so we can be free of those things. But the God says, no, you can't bring that stuff in here. Uh, the cup can come in, but the contents have to be dumped. That is not permitted in my kingdom. But he wants us to be in his kingdom now. But we can't enter to his kingdom because we have so much anger. We have so much fear and worry and unforgiveness and selfishness and ego. He says, that's got to go. Reminds me of... <laughs> You know, when you get on a plane, they put your backpack and everything through a scanner. And once in a while, they, 
they say, well, sir, you have to, we've got something we have to look through here. And I, I'll never forget my mother. She was in her 80s. We flew somewhere, and, and they put her handbag through there, and, and they said, ma'am, you have to come over here. And they start pulling stuff out, and they pulled out her tweezers, her tweezers. And I got this picture of my, 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 my little mother, my little elderly mother, brandishing her tweezers and taking over the cockpit and telling the pilot, you do what I say or I'll pluck out all your eyebrows. I mean, it's just nonsense. But, you know, it's a picture of we want to come into the kingdom and they're saying, you got some things here on you that can't come in. You got to leave that out. That's got to go away. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through what? Through death. Through death. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you've got anger and unforgiveness and all this stuff in your life, there's the problem right there. That describes it. You are afraid to die, and therefore you are subject to slavery. To quote George MacDonald again, same quote I gave a couple weeks ago. There's none so dead. There's no one so dead as he who refuses to die. If you're in slavery to anger, unforgiveness, fear, anxiety, you need to do some dying. And Yeshua showed us how. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Messiah. That's the attitude we have to have. When I see him on the cross, I have to also picture that's where my Yetzer Harah belongs. My selfish hands, my selfish feet, my selfish thoughts, my selfish heart, my selfish mouth, they all need to be dealt with as his body was dealt with on the cross. It is no longer I who live. What freedom that is. But Messiah who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These are powerful passages of Scripture. So I want to leave you with a few questions. I want you to remember this. The dead are free. But we're not to commit suicide. That's a sin. That's still murder. But we're to die to self. If we're to be a disciple of Yeshua, we must die to self. So when stress and anxiety hit, this is what you ask yourself. If I was dead, would I be stressed and anxious? What would a dead man feel right now? How would a dead man react? You slap a dead man on one cheek, is he going to slap you back? Mm -mm. So when you're tempted to feel anxious, angry, remember, Father, what would a dead man feel? How would he react? Father, thank you for providing a door of death for me to walk through. And that door is Yeshua. He's the way, the truth, of life. He is the door for us to come to real life. If we can just die, how free we'll be. And we can begin to experience the resurrection power of Yeshua.
in ways we never dreamed. This is what Paul says, I believe it's over in Philippians. The one thing he does, he wants to be, he wants to know his Messiah. He wants to take hold of the one who has taken hold of him so that he could learn from his death and his sufferings. He could be free of himself. This is what God calls us to. Because all the things that are polluting our souls right now, we can't take into the kingdom with us. They're not allowed. We have to die to those things. We should be like holy ghosts haunting this world. I hate that translation, holy ghost, for, for the Holy Spirit, but, but we should be like ghosts haunting this world. We're more of the world to come than we are of this world. But we're still here. But all the things that are around us can't hurt us. They can't damage us. We can weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh. We can rejoice with others. And we can live life to the fullest because we've died to all the things that are trying to kill us. So, discussion questions for the week. What is the difference between a test and a temptation? If there is a difference, why does Greek use one word for both? Identify a family tradition. This goes for that long section that we skipped over. So we'll pick it up next week. But it's all about tradition. Study that section, see how it begins, how it ends, and you'll get the keys to how to, to interpret it. How can large gatherings be good? How can they be harmful? What is God's norm? Why is it so important that we proclaim the Lord's death? What dark things do you carry in your soul that will not be allowed into God's kingdom? And I just challenge you from now on, when you partake of the blessings of the bread and the cup on Erev Shabbat, that you really proclaim the Lord's death and become a participant in dying with him and becoming truly free, truly free people. And that way you can truly be filled with God's resurrection life. So let's pray. Our Father and King, take these stumbling words, I pray, And speak to our souls and spirits words that only you can speak. They can only speak spiritually. And Lord, take the reality, this great burst of light that comes out of the word of God to us when we realize what Yeshua's death was really all about. It was more than just taking the sins of the world upon himself, though that would have been enough. Dayenu, it would have been enough. But more than that, it was to set the sinner free. We don't have to live like we have been. And so many believers, Father, believers who are hearing this right now, are still in slavery. They're still in slavery. They're willing to let you die for them. They're not willing to die for you, and therefore they still hold on to the burden of self. But over and over and over, the Master told us, whoever holds on to his life will lose it. But whoever lets go of his life for my sake, that one will find it. So, Father, help us to walk through the dumboot, the door of death, so we can now be not just in your image, but in your likeness. Make us those kinds of people, Father, I ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.